0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery.
2: Hello and welcome to Did You Read, the Times podcast. Tim Montgomery is away this week, so Phil Collins, that's me, is taking over just for one week only to guide you through the articles that have appeared in the times this week and i'm joined by three of our most distinguished political commentators rachel sylvester hugo rifkind and daniel finkelstein and if you want to subscribe to any of these articles please do go to the times website where you can find them all
1: Politics is the art of surprises, but David Cameron is reverting to type with his pronouncements on welfare, immigration, crime, Europe and pensioners. Now, senior Tories are urging him to announce a big rise in the national minimum wage as a way of making the voters think again about the Conservative Party.
3: People keep trying to rehabilitate Enoch Powell. Most recently, it was Nigel Farage on TV on Sunday who said that his basic principle of immigration causing tension was right. But Powell didn't just think that immigration would cause tension, he thought that it would cause violent societal breakdown, and he was simply wrong.
4: The costs of the NHS are rising so fast that even when ring-fenced, spending is struggling to keep up with demand. So what should the next government do? I'll be arguing this week in the paper for a hypothecated NHS tax. It won't solve the problem, but at least it'll clarify what the problem is.
2: OK, thank you. Let's start with Rachel's thesis. now. Your, the modernisation of the Conservative Party has been a constant theme, this parliament, hasn't it? And what you're saying is that with announcements on welfare and immigration and crime, there's a risk, as I understand you, that the Tories are going back to a sense of being a bit nasty, a bit concerned with those sorts of Things and, and away from the more compassionate idea that David Cameron began life as leader of the Tory Party in, in, in an announcing. Is, is that? Yeah.
1: Right? I genuinely don't understand what the Tories are doing because they've tried this strategy three times now, and ni- none of those times has it worked. And David Cameron was meant to be a different kind of Conservative leader. All the point of all that hugging husky, huskies, being nice to hoodies, you know, greenery, all of those things. It was to signal that he was a new, more compassionate kind of conservative. And now they're sort of reverting to type, if you like. And I genuinely don't understand why and why they think it's going to work this time when it hasn't. And what I think is the most interesting aspect is that when you look at all the polling and focus group evidence what people find most off-putting about the conservatives is this sense that they are still the perception that they're still the party of the rich you know posh run by posh boys who don't know the price of milk as Nadine Doris said and that they don't they're not like people like us if you like that's what all the focus groups and polls say um And and that's what the perception that they they haven't addressed sufficiently.
2: Aren't there two good reasons why it's very difficult for them in a way that it wasn't so difficult for, say, Tony Blair to modernize the Labour Party? One of which is that their inheritance from the previous government was, was awful and they had to work on the deficit, which wasn't their intention prior to coming to government. That was given to them. And the second is that they don't have a majority. And therefore, David Cameron is more beholden to parts of his party who do want to concentrate on those issues than Tony Blair ever was. And though that's, is that not sufficient explanation for why this is happening?
1: I'm sure it's an explanation. And also in the coalition, it's easy for the Liberal Democrats to claim credit for all the sort of supposedly nice things and leaving the sort of Tories holding the... You know, tough baby, if you like. But actually, that's why it's even more important for David Cameron to sort of fight to get off those kind of tram rails, if you like. That's why I think this idea about the national minimum wage and proposing a big increase in that is interesting and would be quite a smart thing for Cameron to do. And what I found fascinating when I was talking to people yesterday for the piece I wrote in Tuesday's paper is that there is an increasingly sort of wide cross-section of opinion in the Tory party that's now thinking that David Cameron ought to do this it's not just you know the sort of uber modernizers or sort of liberals or whatever there's a sort of range of people including i gather george osborne who has now almost announced this in the autumn statement last year but then pulled back at the very last minute when the Low Pay Commission told him that it wasn't his job to set rates.
2: Okay, well, talking of uber modernisers, Danny, you've been in that camp from the very beginning.
4: Yeah, and I remain in it. And and I think Rachel's got a very strong point. The brand of the Conservative Party is that it's for the rich and uh, that it doesn't care about people beyond its own group and that it's harsh. Um, That actually can be thing because people think it's capable of making tough decisions and that's been really, really necessary. But it's got a bad side to it, a very important one. And, you know, Rachel's right to point to it. And I think you know, if you are looking in the next parliament to billions of pounds of cuts, as George Osborne said earlier this week, you've got to persuade people that you have uh, the interests of the broad electorate in mind And you've got to show people that you are, um, you know, at a very, very basic level, though it sounds like a sort of rather sappy word, you've got to show that you're nice people. Uh, To an extraordinary extent, if you are a conservative, as I am, um, going out talking to people who are even on the centre, you know, even on the mildly centre left, people just don't think conservatives are like that. They actually don't think they care about poor people, for example. You have to work quite hard to persuade them that that's the case. And I don't think that's... The party showing sufficient discipline in doing that.
2: Hugo, you you know some conservatives, and um, <laughs> I, I can say, cause, so that you don't have to, that the one you know is a very nice person. Well, that's very kind. Well, what do you make of? Um,
3: well, I think I mean there, there can be, from what Rachel says, there can be sort of two things going on here when you, you talk about the Tories reverting to type. It can be a, it can be cynical, or it can be not cynical. You know they can be they can be going they can be moving to the right because it's a, a calculated strategy in order to disorientate UKIP and wing back voters and et cetera et cetera. Or they can be doing it because they genuinely think that's the, they genu- genuinely think that's the model for the country. That's the way forward. That's what people will vote for because that's really who they are. And I'd almost be less worried by the former if I thought it was cynical and calculating. Actually, I think Tories are reverting to type because this is their type. This is um this
4: is what the bulk of the party believes in. One thing we mustn't get away from: there is a crime problem that people do think is important and you do have to have policies to deal with and the deficit got out of control. So I don't think the Conservative Party um, should should run away from those things. It does still have to be tough on those things and you know, truthfully, uh, one of the reasons why I've sort of found myself ending up on the centre-right is because the country keeps going bust, doing the opposite. So, um, and, and, you know, that isn't a tenable, that's not a good thing for poor people apart from anything else. But at the same time as you do that, you have to make sure that you take people with you and that they understand the decisions you're taking are for the good of everyone. In other words, you're not cutting uh, back um, benefit just because you dislike people. You're doing it to make the benefit system fairer to those people who want to put an effort in okay. and that you're trying to make people uh, better off who haven't got very much money. But, but yeah. do you genuinely think that
3: that's the motivation of the majority of the, sort of the, 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 the right wing Tory yes, backbenchers? ventures? You yeah, really absolutely. think that's what's going on?
4: I mean, look, there, is, there are some people in any political party whose motivation uh, um, you, you kind of... Uh, Escapes um, one's comprehension. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> Could that's you true name a few that's, names? Please. That's true of all, No, <laughs> but that's true, and that's true of all uh, political parties. But yeah, by and large, you know, the broad mass of conservative people are like any other person, which is they're concerned about people who who have you know who have misfortunes or who are not able uh, to do as well as other people. Uh, they're concerned about the you know the education system and the health system, and they want uh, a strong, um, cohesive community and the disagreement is about how we achieve that. You know, one big disagreement is we can't achieve it by spending loads of money because there's a limit to how much money we've got. it's about
1: choices and what you spend it on, isn't it? So you can't say we're going to cut £12 billion more from the welfare budget over two years, but yet we're going to protect the wealthiest pensioners and give them their free television licences and winter fuel allowances and while we're sort of slashing and burning the benefits for poor people. The
4: the amount of money for the... The the, the problem with the... um, Pensioners uh, is is a, it's only a small amount of money for a huge amount of political pain, uh, as, and you know I think there is a question over whether the Conservative Party should do this. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if you know as as a columnist and a sort of free marketeer and somebody who's interested in austerity, of course I would say that you have to do something about the uh, TV allowances. But uh, you know for the political pain, would I do it? I'm not sure I would. Right.
2: Okay. Well, that's we're not going to solve that one now. Let's move from the centre right to the. Much, much <laughs> further right um, with Hugo, which is that's, not to suggest that's that kind that's of where him. you are. <laughs> no, um, but you've been writing about Nigel Farage and his uh, his liking for Enoch Powell.
3: Yes, indeed. Nigel Farage was on was on uh, on Sky on Sunday, and he uh, found himself nodding along to various phrases from Enoch Powell's famous uh, Birmingham speech, the Rivers of, of Blood speech. And I wanted to write about this speech today. I did write about this speech today um, because. It, it, it bugs me and irritates me that this speech is still regarded as, it's almost like one of the polarities of the immigration debate it's still regarded it as a speech that was made perhaps using some unfortunate un- unfortunate racist language and undertones but still as a sort of valid perspective on immigration and race, which is complete nonsense, it was wrong, it was wrong in every way, it had a vision for the future which didn't happen, it predicted race war and apocalypse, which fifty what 56 years later, 54 years later 56 years later, simply hasn't occurred um, I make the point in the column that what's often forgotten about this speech was that it was made, I think it's something like 10 days after after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and um, America was sort of, you know, engulfed in race war. Powell, in the speech, directly predicts, not only predicts, well, ra- well predicts race war in Britain, or as good as, and he, he wasn't right. He wasn't even right about America. You know, uh, racial integration in, in America got better. Racial integration in, in Britain got much better. The, the sort of the terrible spectre that he thought immigration threatened us with simply didn't occur. Uh, and it's time, to, it's time to stop treating him as though he was a reasonable person.
2: It, Powell exercises a real fascination still for some parts of the, of the right, doesn't he, as, a, as an intellectual
4: figure. Well, I think um, he was genuinely an intellectual um, uh, but uh, there is a fascinating story. Um, I think it's how either in Rab Butler's memoirs or the biography of Rab Butler, in which when when Enoch Powell worked for the Conservative uh, Research Department, he went to see Winston Churchill um, to present him a plan for reconquering India. And um, uh, when uh, Rab Butler had taken him out and come back in, Churchill said, "Is he really or is he all right, that boy?" <laughs> um, and uh, you know, th- there was a was a brilliant person. Um, but like a lot of brilliant people, he was also deeply eccentric. Uh, and that speech that he, he made um, contained arguments that uh, if he'd merely, as, as Hugo said, argued for uh, that there's a problem about.
0: Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: Racial integration over time um, might have been an interesting contribution to the debate without necessarily being right, uh, but but necessarily an acceptable one. However, that's not what he did. No, it's he, a
2: river type of foam with much blood that was yes. the, the, the central motif. It's interesting that Powell's thesis came out of his time in India. He loved India, but he felt, having been there, that, that cultures were so different they couldn't merge. So it was a, an extensive cultural sort of difference well, problem he it, had.
3: It's apartheid, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, you know, uh,
4: one, it, I remember, it was a view of the know, time. I well, once saying that, that um, he made it uh, his business never to go to the toilet before making a speech because he found that tension um, quite uh, useful when speaking. And I think that's a really, really interesting insight into his personality. Right. What
1: I think is ha- fascinating about UKIP and it fits into this a bit is it's not really about race, I don't think. It's about fear of change and it's about wanting to go back to a world, sort of idealised world that people think existed in the past and actually didn't exist. But but it's a kind of yearning for the past in a way and a fear of modernity. So the, the polling around UKIP voters, it's all about, you know, I don't like the fact that we can't celebrate Christmas anymore. I don't like the fact that it's sort of PC gone mad. It's It's all the sort of this sense of the world is changing and I don't like the pace of change. Do you think that's so what much about Farage the was as getting a...
2: at? When Farage was nodding along on the Murnahan program to sections of the mm. uh, Powell speech, what do you
4: think he was agreeing with? A, a vast increase taking taken place in immigration into Britain uh, without anybody being consulted over whether they thought it was a good idea when most people were against that happening and now you can have some arguments about whether it had to happen because of globalisation um, but uh, it's very, very important that we do that people don't just dismiss those concerns as if they were not real democratic. People don't have a real democratic right to express that opinion because it offends against some but sensibility. You and you I, you know, I'm the son of, of refugees, so I, you know, in, in this, to a certain extent, it offends against my sensibilities. But every every other
2: s- day, there's a column about immigration. I mean, the idea that we can't not, talk about no, no, it. no it's not we, that we, you we, can't talk about
4: it, but that that um, that a. Res- a res- one of the responses to all the talk about it is uh, these are kind of, this is kind of an unacceptable atavistic um view of people who are living in the dark ages i I don't think it's actually as simple as that well, I think wait, well, uh, theres th- well, when they celebrate exactly a speech like this, Enoch Powell's speech, no, no, I, I mean, don't. that's a, that's exactly what they are I'm and are doing. Look, don't, don't feel, I'm not defending you yeah. for a second, yeah. or that speech, I mean, well, in any way whatsoever.
3: I, I, th- I thought um, Farage said something very interesting on the radio this morning, actually, I think he was on the Today programme. And he said that he'd uh, he'd rather, what does he say, he said he'd rather live in a poorer country with less immigration he said. He, he said. Even if immigration would bring make us all richer, make the country richer, make us all individually richer, he'd rather have less of it. Which, I mean, I welcome completely. That was it, one of the most honest things he's ever I, said. I wrote
2: myself this week that I wish opponents of immigration would be more honest, and yeah. that is at least does have the virtue of being a, a bold statement of what he absolutely. thinks. If he really meant it. I mean, one <laughs> of the things. But about also,
1: you have to deal with the real issue. So, you know, it's not really about race or people of different colour coming in or different countries. It's about the fact that people are worried about housing. It's about the fact that people are worried about education and schools and health service. It's not as simple as if you sort of box it all into race then that becomes, I think that's a, a mistake.
2: The, the you have to deal service. with the sort
1: of cause rather than the symptom.
2: You've given me the perfect cue to move on to <laughs> the health service. because Danny, you're writing about the NHS yes. and spending is
4: keeps going up at a time when the country's a bit strapped for cash, and you've got a plan to fix this. The first thing is, just looking at the problem, if we went on spending, increasing spending, at the same rate that NHS spending increased over the last, over the 10 years after 2000, By the year 2070, 100% of gross national product would be spent on health care. So um, the level of spending that was necessary to sustain the NHS without crises uh, and without um, problems, given the nature of the offer we've made to people about health, uh, is, is completely unsustainable and so at some point it has to be addressed and what i've been trying to think about is how does any politician actually address this problem when what you're when people are getting something free and you're the person saying you can't have as much of it as you want and the only thing that you can do i think is attach it to a cost and that's why I'm in favour of a hypothecated tax, in other words, a separated out tax that covers the National Health Service uh, and means that uh, when politicians discuss spending more money as technology changes and we have new possibilities in health, uh, people at least realise that um, there's a cost to it. So, so you mean a specific NHS tax
2: yes. that would be called something as clear as that? Yes. So if you wanted to increase health service, we'd have to say we're coming back for more on yes, your NHS correct. Tax. That's because they're proposal.
1: not out of it. Could you say I don't want to use no. the NHS? <laughs>
4: why not? Because it will be a cost that it will be a tax for everyone to pay uh, in, in exactly the same way that I don't use the benefit system, but I have to pay in uh, to it. It just would be a, a tax, but it would be earmarks. Now, clearly, you know, your point is one of the reasons why lots of there, are, there's questions about hypothecated tax, but I don't. The question is very difficult to answer. Somebody mm-hmm. says, "Can I opt out of the NHS tax?" And the answer is no.
2: What about the problem that the treasury will always say about dedicated taxes like that which is that it's very hard to manage the flow of money
4: within the year you get variations of spending well it's difficult to manage the flow of overall spending I mean the OBR can't predict uh, the from one day to another. You just borrow the deficit, the deficit and if you feel that you're beginning, beginning to build up a structural deficit, you have to either reduce costs or increase uh, tax. That is, after all, the point of doing it. Uh, yes, I completely agree. It is relating the amount of money we spend to how, to how much money um, th- th- we raise. And th- this is actually a critical argument because people think, oh, uh, there's a specific good that we're trying to buy, and um we do then put the amount of money in necessary to pay for it. and what I'm saying is actually, there's an almost limitless good that you could buy, so it has to be limited by the amount we can pay for it. so
2: presumably, what we'd also have to do is to define explicitly what that tax well, purchases it would force so which it. which things are within the NHS and which things it are it would begin without to it. force that argument, yes.
3: Say, well, firstly, isn't, wasn't this once similar to the idea about national insurance?
1: Mm.
3: I mean, you know, that was supposed to be a dedicated tax, and now it just sort of goes into the pot along with.
2: Everything and interestingly else. enough,
1: did a penny increase on mm. that? Didn't he? To, mm. As an NHS,
2: national insurance at the moment, the, the amount it raises is almost exactly the amount that the NHS spends at oh, the really? moment. So national insurance could be the dedicated tax. But Danny is seeking.
3: If I may, what, what interests me about it is the idea that it might it could terribly backfire. In that you get somebody going along to their doctor saying, How dare you not give me the particular cancer drugs I'm asking for? When look at this bit of paper that says I paid 30, 30 grand in NHS. They do taxes that anyway. Last year.
4: I mean, by the way, a lot of people think that they. Um, are paying for the National Health Service through the national insurance. In fact, it mm. isn't related to national insurance. Um, so the, the idea when the NHS was set up was that the amount of money required to go into it would reduce because people would become healthier. And in 1952, they did a study and sort of said, look, this is an illusion. Uh, we've known for, for 60 years it's an illusion, but we've got at some point to cope with the fact that the, the, the technological possibilities are driving up costs, that... Um, that that the fact that there is a sort of irreducible number of people who work on healthcare care uh, is driving up costs. So productivity is very elusive, although we could, by the way, be doing much more and I think would be doing if we limited the amount of money that we we're putting into it. And so ultimately, we've got to face up to the fact that we can't just go on putting in without giving any thought to what the limits or cost of this service are. And this is just a way of trying to focus that debate. And by the way, this discussion illustrates how that would work. Mm.
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting point. But I think there's a problem with sort of big structural reorganizations. This isn't actually an example of that. But when Andrew Lanzi did sort of huge, massive shake up, it cost an absolute fortune, confused everyone, all the professionals wasted loads of time hiring each other, firing each other, you know, big payoffs for people who were fired and then rehired. You know, the next week. But but there are lots of sort of small and completely not expensive things that could be done, just emailing test results, emailing prescriptions. You know, why do you have to send five letters to get the results of a knee MRI scan, you know, involving presumably three different doctors, four different... Assistance typing out letters postage etc you should be able to sort of email that get it all done in one day it would make life easier for the patient make it cheaper for the nhs and make it easier for the doctors but there seems to be this huge sort of structure we're not using the sort of technology that is there we're paying the price of the sort of in, you know improvements in technology but we're not using technology <coughs> in the nhs to make it more efficient you know,
4: there's a lot of conserved mm. small c conservatism in the health service and obviously um, one needs to address that. And I agree that often people come up with dramatic schemes when rather more prosaic um, efficiency uh, savings would, would work. But it, I, although all those all that's right, I don't think it solves the problem. What point.
2: do you think the impact of this would be on other taxation? Because one thing that might happen is that people are generally averse to paying too much tax. But the NHS tax might be, as far as any tax is ever popular, quite popular. Certainly more so than lots of the other non-dedicated taxes. So the overall tax burden, a politician would have to make some sort of assessment of that. The temptation always to go back to the NHS to put up tax would be quite
4: big, wouldn't it? And well, we're wouldn't doing they- that anyway. I mean, so what's, what's happening is that uh, – by- one of the things that's one of the things that's causing George Osborne to say half of the savings I'm going to have to get in the next parliament are going to come from welfare is not being able to cut the National Health Service. And there are good reasons for not cutting the National Health Service. By the way, um, it's not necessarily wrong to think that you know we, we could we could get more. People want more health uh, care as more becomes available and as we become richer as a country. Uh, so, uh, But that's what's happening. What's happening is that we are effectively giving a larger and larger proportion of our tax uh, to the NHS. So tax on the NHS is going up while tax on everything else is going down.
2: Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we could go on. Believe me, we could go on. (laughs) Um, But we will come back to these issues, I'm sure, many times. And we will certainly come back physically next week for the next podcast. In the meantime, if you enjoyed that little discussion, uh, please do go to the Times website where you can uh, subscribe and, and read these brilliant thoughts every week. But for the moment, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.